This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I am Madam Adams. Cindy Adams. The same Cindy Adams you read Monday through Thursday in the New York Post. At least I hope you do. You better. Listen, it, it's not been such a good couple of days for any of us. This week we lost Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth of England. This day, in 2001, we also suffered our own miseries. Remember 9-11. It was this day. We who were here then will never forget. I remember it vividly. It was early morning, an otherwise normal routine day. I was in bed. The phone rang. A friend screamed at me through the phone. You watching what's happening at the World Trade Center? You watching TV? I said, no, I'm reading the morning newspapers. She shouted, turn on television. I turned on television, and the horror unfolded. I live in New York City. I live midtown. That's far from the center of the World Trade Center. What began in front of where I live, which is way uptown, and it went on continually, steadily, hour after hour, nonstop, way into the evening hours, was the ceaseless shrieking of ambulance sirens. This was uptown, where I am far, far away from where it happened. But hospitals downtown closer to the horror had filled up quickly. So speeding, clanging ambulances kept coming non-stop in front of my building all night long, further and further uptown, as those closer to the terrorist attack couldn't handle any more people. It was 3,000 dead. Osama bin Laden attacking, hijacking, right directly inside the heart of the United States of America. Suicide terrorist attacks, militant Islamics, Al-Qaeda extremists, hijacked airplanes. You know all about this. I'm only repeating it because... Today is the day. It was inside our very soil, something that has never happened before. America's seniors lived through the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. Well, this generation will never, never, ever forget the bastards of 9-11. And this week, we, it's not been a good week for anybody, Great Britain and the rest of the world have also now just lost civilization's longest reigning monarch, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. May God bless Her Majesty for eternity. Last year the Queen was finally enthroned in Madame Tussauds' waxworks. Her royal likeness took one year to create. Invites for her Platinum Jubilee had gone out May 
of this year. July, her personal decree to save Buckingham's grass band Elton John from his arrival at Buckingham was she wanted to protect her grass. He finally was allowed to show the front door via golf cart, and he wore more diamonds than she. Her favorite sip was Dubonnet. Her favorite dessert, mint chocolate ice cream. Favorite grandchild, Prince Edward's little girl. Known trait, thrifty. No unnecessary lights remained on in Buckingham. An eternity ago, in a civilization long gone, comedian Bob Hope told a very young reporter, me, about the fun of being with Her Majesty. Fun, I said. Fun? What can you possibly mean, fun? And he said, I have been with Queen Elizabeth many times. The Queen would walk through the stiff official halls of Buckingham with me, he said, and she'd walk through the halls and look at the, the paintings on the wall, those severe-looking, stern, unsmiling portraits lining the walls, those royal ancestors glaring down at her. And Her Majesty would make a little fun of them. Once, said Bob Hope, when I was there with my wife, she put on a thick Dutch accent. She was great fun, he said. Great fun, the queen? I then reported this in a magazine. I doubt Her Majesty read it or even had a subscription, but Bob Hope never complained or requested a correction from my article, nor was correction required when I reported Her Majesty did not see Helen Mirren playing her in the audience. I was presented to the Queen twice. In one garden party, a starched, somnipresent equerry in formal cutaway grey suit stood alongside, ramrod straight. The signal was that omnipresent black pocketbook hanging from her wrist. A guest was tiresome or taking up too much time. Her handbag shifted to the other wrist. The shift was the equerry signal to move her along. The second time I was with her was with when my friend, BBC's public relations executive, Miss Freddie Hancock, was honored. She was in a ballroom of Buckingham Palace. I was along. We guests shook her hand. She wore usual gloves. Me, me, Markle, the divorced show-business duchess daughter-in-law, and her high-IQ husband, Prince Empty, have finished a book zapping the royal family. Publication date is momentarily. Congratulations on their timing. Okay, I am now coming up to a quickie WABC radio station break. This very week, 
is their anniversary, over a hundred years old. They began in 1921, even before me. So listen, they're entitled to a station break. And then I'm going to interview several interesting people, like Alan Dershowitz, who has written 50 books and been the lawyer for everyone, probably going back to Marco Polo. And I'm going to speak to Mark Stein, who has been somebody very well known in England broadcasting. And I'm going to talk to him about the Queen. So, right now, before we go back to my talking about all these people, I'll be back in a minute so the station can make a buck. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Alan Dershowitz is a name of face that all America knows. He's probably our foremost legal scholar. He has been on with such clients as Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst, Leona Helmsley, Julia, Julian Assange, Jim Baker, Klaus von Bülow, Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein, O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Epstein, enough already. And now he has his 50th book coming out. It's out, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. What does that title mean, Alan? Well, you know, I've represented all those people, many of whom uh, are very unpopular and hated, and I've never been attacked for that. Um, but once I defended President Trump, uh, I was canceled. Uh, the library in Martha's Vineyard wouldn't allow me to speak. Caroline Kennedy sat next to me at a dinner and said if she knew I was invited, she would never have come. Oh. Uh, the library banned my books, all for defending President Trump, and so I decided to write a book about the important principles that I've lived by all my life, the adversary system, due process, free speech, equality, and how these principles today are being compromised by partisan considerations and how people like me who stick to principle are being canceled and attacked. My family is attacked. I'm getting phone calls at 3 in the morning threatening me and my family. It's just been terrible, but uh, I'm fighting back. Does that mean that our country is without principle? Our country today is without principles. I hate to say that, but we are no longer a principled country. We were when I was growing up. Today we're a partisan country. Everything depends on which side you're on. If you're on get Trump, then nothing you do is wrong. If you're on the side of defend Trump, now I don't vote for Trump. I voted against him twice. We'll vote against him a third time if he runs. But I'm in favor of the Constitution. But people don't care about principles anymore. And that's why I wrote The Price of Principle. I want to get people back to thinking about principles. That's what made this country great. I don't know whether we can ever make this country great again in the next 20 minutes. It ain't happening. Let me ask you a couple of questions that I'm, sure. I'm dying to ask just in general. Isn't it the truth, a principle, that if you get off, if you have a good lawyer, it almost doesn't matter what your case is if you've got a smart lawyer. Isn't that the I truth? It, I would put it the opposite way. If you have a bad lawyer, you probably won't get off. But, you know, there are so many people that have had good lawyers, uh, including me, who haven't gotten off. Um, Michael Milken went to prison. Mike Tyson went to prison. Um, so many people with very good lawyers have gone to prison. Look, having a good lawyer is as much of an advantage 
as having a good doctor. You're more likely to survive if you, you know, have a great doctor than you are if you have a mediocre doctor. But uh, uh, you're still likely, if you're guilty, you're still likely to be convicted no matter how good your lawyer is. And I tell that to my clients all the time. I can help you, but I'm not a miracle worker. If you did it and there's proof that you did it, you're going down. So maybe we can get a plea bargain. Maybe we can figure something out to get you a reduced sentence, but don't expect to get acquitted no matter how good your lawyer is. And I have to explain that to my clients because they think I'm a miracle worker. I have won lots and lots and lots of cases, but I've also lost some. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm pretty good is that I know the difference between cases I can win and cases I can't. And I give the client the benefit of that advice. I always thought growing up, the law should be rigid. I didn't think that the law was like a woman in heat. You hit her right, you get it off. The law is malleable. It depends on the lawyer. That, to me, was very strange. Well, I think it depends on so many factors. It depends on politics. It depends on popularity. It depends on what era we're living in uh, with the Me Too era. Uh, people have been convicted for things they would never have been convicted of in, in past times, and uh, the pendulum swings widely. The, the law is only as good as the people who administer it, and uh, the people who administer it are human beings. And, uh, you know, fallacies occur. The guilty get convicted. The innocent get uh, the guilty get acquitted sometimes, and the innocent get convicted. That's what we try so hard to avoid, you know, our country. Our Constitution is based on the principle, better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly convicted. And that's, as a defense attorney, what I what I try to do. And But I've lost some involving innocent people who went to jail, and it's a terrible thing. That's when I really lose sleep. I've been on the outside of some of your cases just because I'm a reporter. For instance, sure. you were defending O.J. I hated right. and despised him. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I can understand that. I've hated and despised many of my clients. Oh, I'm like a doctor. Did you really? Doctors, you know, doctors don't. How do you do that? Patients. How do you do that? Well, you have to do it. That's your job. Doctors have to do it too. Uh, I remember a case where a friend of mine who was a police officer tried to break up a domestic fight in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the a man shot him. Uh, shot the police officer, and then police officer shot back and, and wounded the person who shot him. And they were both rushed to the same hospital. And I went to visit my friend in the hospital. He was furious because the doctors had treated the criminal before they treated him. They said, we don't sit in judgment over who the good guys and the bad guys are. What we do is we triage, and the most serious wound gets treated first. And, you know, lawyers are a little bit like that. We have to defend the guilty and the despised. And I've made a career out of spending, out of defending the most despised, the most hated. Until Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, you know, Larry David comes over to me and Schulmark and screams at me and says, you're disgusting, you're disgusting. I can't even talk to you, you're disgusting. He was a good friend. But because I defended President Trump, he no longer regards me as somebody he can even speak to. So that's that's why I wrote the book, The Price of Principle. Oh, I see. I, I understand. What about clients who do not listen to the famous attorney, Alan Dershowitz? Does that not occur? Well, it does occur, and I have quick cases when they won't listen to me. If they ask me to do things that are improper, I obviously won't do it. Uh, if they just refuse to follow my advice, 
um, they pay the consequences. You know, I'm a I'm a, an experienced lawyer. What I tell them is usually the right thing, but some of them won't agree. Some of them have different goals. Like sometimes the goal is more to uh, appear strong in public than to win their case. And you know, sometimes yeah. people want to hire me just to present them to the public. I turn those down. Uh, I want to win in court, not in the court of public opinion. You also, but this is going back a thousand years, when I was early on with the New York Post, there was Klaus von Bülow, whom I had the story, the original story, the first story that I believed he had done his wife in, and you were defending him. Can you go back a little over that and why you were defending him? I thought he was a bum. Well, he might, might very well have been a bum and probably a very bad husband. But yeah. uh, we ultimately proved that uh, he had nothing to do with her coma, that she um, hurt herself, that she um, was very careless. She had reactive hypo- hypoglycemia, and she was uh, eating inappropriately and drinking inappropriately. And the, when, it, when I got a conviction reversed, and then he went to trial a second time, and the jury acquitted him very quickly and uh, just concluded there was no crime at all that it was a tragedy but you know a lot of people didn't believe that but that's the nature of our legal system everybody gets a shot juries make the decision 12 ordinary people sat in judgment over this wealthy you know aristocrat from from Newport Rhode Island yeah, and they yeah, acquitted him. Yeah. They acquitted him. you have the right to disagree with that you have the right to disagree with the OJ verdict a lot of people disagree with it and you have the right to disagree that Donald Trump shouldn't have been you know convicted by the Senate I argue that he shouldn't be people have the right to believe he should have been that's the American way but not to talk to people not to have any relationship with them have people calling me at three in the morning threatening me threatening my wife threatening my children I mean that's not the American way tell me now what is your opinion about the Harvey Weinstein situation the future. Well, I um, advise. Uh, I've known Harvey Weinstein for yeah, I know, and you were on the case too, thirty yeah. years. Yeah, and I was. I was an advisor. I wasn't involved in the case directly. Um, and as you know, the New York Court of Appeals has just uh, indicated it will review the case, and that's a good sign. It may indicate that there were problems with the trial itself. He's also now going to stay in trial in California. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, he really has a great deal of of trouble. Um, But my only concern is that he get a fair trial, just a fair trial. Uh, Let, you know, the chips may fall where they may. Juries have the right to come to various decisions, but it has to be a fair trial. And you can't introduce evidence that's inadmissible, and you can't deny him the right to introduce evidence that's admissible. All we can guarantee every defendant under the Constitution is due process in a fair trial, and that's my job to see that it happens, even to the most unpopular people. Did you ever blow something? Did you ever go off on a wrong tear or have a client that wouldn't listen to you? Certainly I've had clients that didn't listen to me. I don't think I've ever, you know, blown a case by my own. I mean, I work so hard when I get involved in a case. I I recently got involved in a case in Wyoming, Um and I just spent weeks and weeks and weeks studying the transcripts, studying the record. And I think everybody was surprised how this, you know, out-of-town lawyer who's well-known worked so hard on what many people appeared to be a small case in Wyoming. But 
once I take a case, uh, I'm obsessed with it. And I work incredibly hard, and I don't think I make mistakes in my professional life. We all make mistakes in our personal life, but professional life, no. And, of course, there was an accusation against me by a woman who you know, has a history of lying, and that was false. I've lived a, a private life. Um, I've been married now 36 years to the same woman, and I never had any sexual relationships with anybody related to Jeffrey Epstein or anybody else during the relevant time period. So I'm very comfortable with my personal life and my professional life. But I write about both both of them in my book, The Price of Principle, because I've been attacked both for my representation of Jeffrey Epstein and for my representation of Donald Trump. How did you like when Evan Handler played you in the TV series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson? I hated it. I don't think Evan Handler was a particularly good actor. And it was a stereotype. <laughs> it was a stereotype. You know, every time they, they showed me, I was eating a bagel. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to present me as this, you know, this Jewish guy who uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like the show at all. I didn't like Handler. Um, I did like my portrayal in Reversal of Fortune. I think that was really, really excellent. Oh, you've been everywhere, for God's sakes. Tell me about, I mean, I don't know how to ask this question. Tell me about the Donald situation. I mean, I can't understand what I should be understanding. Tell me. Well, the Justice Department is conducting a very thorough investigation. They have released the affidavit underlying the search. I don't think he will be indicted because for a former and possibly future president to be indicted, it has to meet two standards. The Richard Nixon standard, so overwhelming that even the Republicans wanted him impeached and indicted. And the Hillary Clinton standard, she was not criminally charged with possessing material on her home computer that she shouldn't have. And so the government would have to prove that what Trump did was substantially worse than what Hillary Clinton did in order to meet what I call the shoe on the other foot test. It has to fit comfortably on both feet. Well, okay. I'm not sure I know what you just told me, but it's okay. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> the, that. Your 50th book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity yeah. is Worth the Consequences. Talking to Alan Dershowitz is just a thrill. You're great. I think you're terrific. And I'm very oh, happy that you came you on the air with me. I'm so glad you're still doing this. You're as strong as ever. You have been a real American Idol and American classic. May you live to at least 120. Thank you. And if I ever get in trouble, make sure I have your oh, phone number. Thanks, trouble. sweetheart. Don't get Thanks, trouble. Alan. Don't get in trouble. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now about to talk to Mark Stein. Mark Stein is a Brit who is very well known in that country over there. He's on television, he's on radio, he's an author, and he's on something called GB News. Mark is no stranger to the royal family. 
He has interacted with the departed Queen Elizabeth often, and I am now about to speak with Mark Stein. So, when did you first meet Her Majesty? Uh, the first time would be back in the 1990s, at which time I thought of her already as an uh, elderly lady. I didn't actually think there'd be uh, another uh, third of a century to go, but I, I'm, I've met her twice, two private occasions, uh, once in London and once in Canada, and I, I was basically the only journalist on the planet who was having dinner at Buckingham Palace on the night that Australians voted on whether to become a republic. And what was interesting to me about that was uh, the royal family were quietly confident that they had nothing to worry about and that Australians would stick with the crown. What did you think? I, I realized that the minute you see the Queen, whom I have seen, it's awesome, but what did you think of her as a person, how she looked, how she dressed, how she handled you? It's nervous-making the first time. It is It is nervous because you've got all this stuff in your head about how you're meant to bow from the neck. Uh, George George V said only waiters bow from the waist, so you shouldn't make yourself look like a waiter because otherwise she'll order a tumbler of scotch from you. And it was uh, so. Uh, the, the thing about it is, she's a small. She was a physically small person, but she's the centre of the room. And and the fact is, she's she was. I can't really yet get used to speaking about her in the past tense, but she has a perfect sense of herself uh, and a way to put people at ease. I was uh, uh, standing alongside her when some rather surly Quebec separatist came up, and she just lapsed into absolutely fluent, perfect French, but with that cut-glass English accent. Uh, so she was, oh, monsieur, mais c'est absolument délicieux. And he, being a rather surly, churlish, ungrateful Quebec separatist, uh, had, had absolutely no desire to be charmed by his monarch. Uh, but he was. He couldn't avoid it. He was stunned by the fact that she just started jabbering away in French, and uh, he struggled to keep up with her. Tell me what she had in that handbag. <laughs> well, she she was the the royal family are all very practical because they're out on the road meeting thousands upon thousands upon stra of strangers every day of the week, and they always you know I think it was uh, King Edward VIII's great line, which is a piece of advice. I commend to anybody who ever does anything in public that you should never miss an opportunity uh, to go to the bathroom. So even if you don't need to go, you should always go uh, because in 40 minutes' time you're going to be chatting uh, to some prime minister of uh, Fiji and there won't be an opportunity to go. So she and had the loo in her handbag? No, she didn't have the, <laughs> the loo in the handbag, but she had all those... Uh, I, I don't want to be indiscreet, but I was actually told that she had a toilet seat cover in her handbag in case she took one of those bathroom breaks and the bathroom wasn't quite in the condition she was expecting. Well, actually, when, when Princess Diana was here in New York, she came to Brooklyn because there was some ballet that she was heading, and there was a private loo 
just mm-hmm. for her. So, I mean, even she was not sitting on <laughs> everybody else's toilet seat. This is no. hardly the high-class interview we should be having. <laughs> but <laughs> continue no. on, sweetie. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't actually. I mean, I what I like about that's very much the Queen, though. She was. If you you can find pictures of her in in Balmoral, which is a beautiful castle. I've I've been there with my. I was there with my little girl uh, a couple of years ago. But it is. Uh, it it would not. No wealthy denizen of Park Avenue would wish to live in that place. It's a big old drafty castle, and the Queen, when she would be working there, she would ju- just be sitting at a very modest desk with a like a three-bar space heater that you would pick up at, uh, you know, Walmart for 15 bucks, uh, providing what little heat there was. She, she, was uh, she was a practical woman, and she disliked uh, waste uh, of of any kind, and she was very purposeful about that. Mark, what did courtiers courtiers say to you, or prime the prime people around her before you were approaching the queen? They always give you, don't do this, don't do this, stand here, don't sit down. If she hasn't sat, what did they? What rulings did they give you? Well, there's a there's a bit of that from the aide de camp. I was told when I was invited to dinner at Buckingham Palace. The uh, aide de camp told me a bit of that. I arrived, my typical, uh, the way these things go, my plane landed late at Heathrow. I got to the uh, hotel late, so I'm changing late. So I'm rushing through the gates of Buckingham Palace. And I've been thinking on the plane. You are supposed to address your your majesty, your royal highness, sir, ma'am, on second reference. I was trying to fix it all in my head. I live in the wastelands of New Hampshire, and I'd forgotten a lot of it. So I rush into Buckingham Palace. I'm running a bit late. The footman shows me in, and the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, the Queen's husband, turns towards me and comes towards me, and instead of saying, Your Royal Highness or Sir, I just do the New Hampshire thing, and I stretch out my arm and go, Hi! And he would... <laughs> Because uh, uh, I've been away too long, and uh, and he uh, and, and they're very cool about all that. They they play along, so he just went, uh, uh, well, hi, and shook my and shook my hand, and uh, okay. and they're they're brilliant at that. They were they were magnificent at that. So tell me, how will the world feel about King Charles? Please give me some reference. Well, his first address to his peoples across the Commonwealth, he actually was very explicit in saying that he would now have to back off some of the very activist things he's been doing the last few years. And he hoped his son would take up that role, uh, which I hope he doesn't. But uh, that was interesting to me because he was actually saying, okay, you think of me as this crazy guy who's all about the climate change and ecology and is palling around with Klaus Schwab and the other sinister globalists at Davos. Uh, But I understand I can't do that now. Now I'm the king and the head of the Commonwealth, so I'm putting all that to one side. He more or less actually said that. Okay. Are we allowed to bring up the fact that the new queen consort, you should excuse the expression, was what he discovered discovered once as his Tampax? Are we allowed to bring that up, or are we supposed to forget about that? 
Well, I, I actually had a grand old uh, time doing uh, Prince of Wales tampon jokes back in the 90s. It's like what, reason. what, what, what? Do you remember? Well, I, I, I remember, for example, he said he wanted a modest coronation that he just wanted to do in a lounge suit. And I said, oh, well, if you're going to go down that route, why not replace the scepter uh, with a, a giant tampon? And he was... You said that to him? I didn't say that to him. I actually said it on the BBC. And uh, I also, what was the other one? I think, oh, I, I said, uh, when that tape was leaked, I said, oh, it's like, uh, uh, tip- isn't it so typical? Even when you get a cushy job like Prince of Wales, there's still strings attached. I was just doing, I spent a period of uh, okay. about three months just doing cheapo, uh, low-hanging fruit tampon jokes. It's, it's amazing to me, actually, uh, that the guy ever uh, ever got over that, and it just goes to show how if you just like put your head down and barrel on, you can get over that. Okay, I am not fond of me, me, Megan, nor mm. about her husband Prince Empty. I am not at all fond of them. And the book where they are trashing the the family is coming out at a somewhat inappropriate time. Would you not say so? Well, I'd, I'd slightly distinguish. I think Megan is just absolutely ghastly. Uh, she's the worst kind of cheapo, third-rate celebrity f- whose personal victimhood, which doesn't, you know, being a uh, member of the royal family wouldn't strike most people as a kind of victimhood. I think she she's terrible. She thought it was going to be like uh, palling around with George Clooney and Oprah all the time. Yeah. And in fact, it's a rather dull job where you're opening hospitals or visiting regiments in Bermuda. And yeah. it wasn't her scene at all. He, on the other hand, I think in the, the pictures of him flying back from Balmoral, you see a young man who is... Uh, crushed and caught between the past he is thrown off and this present life as a zealist celebrity in in California and I think that that's what he is he's a zealist celebrity he's of no interest to anybody except that he's whatever in line to the throne and he and no and the idea that they're going to be big shots in Hollywood is preposterous well, the, she is not going to keep him for very long because he's not very bright. His socks are short. When you sh- when you cross your legs, you should have socks that go up to your knee, not just on your ankle. You've got to be an idiot. I've watched him with bare ankles. What kind of an idiot is this? Well, okay. that, that, that's because in the royal family, uh, there would be a valet to put your socks on and make sure that your ankles did not show. But he's cast that. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm such a man of the people. I'm willing to put my own socks on. And when you let him put his own socks on, what you see is a lot of pale, white, pasty, yellow, English calf, and uh, not a lot of people want to see that. But you forget that before Meghan, you know, he was actually, he, he wasn't very bright, but he had the common touch. He served honorably oh, they in all Afghanistan. Do. Oh, they all do. Oh, they all do. They all do 20 minutes of something honorable. That's what they all do. But he was a jerk. And I'm, I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm saying it. He was a jerk. And, and his wife is a jerkette. That's all. Yeah, but there, but in the end, 
They're milking something that fades every day. They're like an extreme example of the problem when you're not the first in line for the throne, but you're the, the second. You're born second. Your brother is kids. You go third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. You spend your whole life getting less important. And they thought they could avoid that by moving to Malibu, uh, and they can't. They're, they're, they're going to get less important every single day, and eventually even Oprah's going to tire of them, and they won't be able to get her to return uh, their calls. Well, I'll tell you something, Mark. It wasn't boring speaking to you. I have to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and I look forward, if you all will come out of New Hampshire one day, wherever the hell that is, and you come to a real city, I will even stand you to food. Okay. Uh, okay. New Hampshire is actually next to Maine. Uh, I've I, heard. I've I, heard. I understand how popular you are there, so I, I, I hope <laughs> I, I, I don't. I hope I, I don't have one of those rear ends you can park a truck on or any I've of been, that. Listen, I hated everything, but I love you. I will speak on you again. Thank you, babe. Thank you, thank honey. You, babe. Thanks, thank you, Mark. Thanks Bye. a lot, Cindy. Bye. Handling legal matters is stressful. So, let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno He's your numero uno. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Well, I am back again after a station break. And we have been speaking about Her Majesty. And I would now like to go local. I would have to say, I do not love Andrew Cuomo. We're New York foreign soil... Andrew would have been its czar. I was very close to Governor Mario, his father. We loved each other. We did dinners together. He escorted me to the governor's mansion. He showed me its private spaces, from the family kitchen to little boy Andrew's room. I loved Mario and his wife Matilda when the Post suffered ownership problems. Not everyone may remember that. I lived through it. I do remember it. I remember riding in a truck. I remember talking to people to collect money to get the Post solid when it was in a problem. And when the Post suffered ownership problems, Governor Mario phoned me daily Rupert Murdoch spoke to the governor every day, and the governor then spoke to me every day. There are zero reasons, as far as I'm concerned, to befriend Andrew. In a crowd, I will tell you, he came over when he saw me. He kissed my cheek. Was it warmth? No, it was not. Was it a brush-off? Yes. It was no interviews. He never called me. He never returned my repeat phone calls. Even before the nursing home scandal, 
I felt anger toward him. He knows this. I have told him this. I knew his long-time live-in from years back. When first Sandra Lee met him, I knew her back when she was still married to a realtor in California. But when she first met him, she came to my home. She called me. She said, I know you know Andrew. I know I've just met him. I need to know about him. She came over, and it was just us alone, the two of us. We talked for hours. She asked about him. He had already divorced his first wife. I told her, frankly, the man is toxic. I warned her. Anyone who doesn't believe me can ask Sandra Lee. She will corroborate. Look, I do not care what happens to Andrew. I now just put forth what maybe should be mentioned. Andrew Cuomo just forwarded me a huge article. It was from a Cato Institute fellow named Young. It said, in part, Cuomo's resignation may be me to excess, not success. What does that mean? It means that me too got a little too forward and possibly, just possibly, not always saying truth. Wrote this person who wrote this article, quote, Questioning these ladies' credibility is seen as reprehensible. I can't do that. I will not do that. Nobody will ever give Andrew a free pass, nor call Andrew angelic. But there are some trivial allegations. There's mild banter. There's photo ops. There's arm around a waist. There's a kiss on a cheek. They do not mean he always did something wrong. But they do question, in some cases, the possible weaponization of me too. Groping one assistant lacked corroboration. Poring over the records, he stated, another looked to rehire after leaving, she was asked after having a problem with him. She looked to retire, rehire after leaving. Another was incensed over an executive order, and she had previously posted Andrew's support for women. I am saying maybe, just maybe, maybe this anger at Andrew for something else could have sharpened her testimony. In 2017, a college settled a lawsuit of a student who falsely accused another of non-consensual sexual contact. It is alleged that now, in a recorded conversation about Cuomo, this person, and here is a direct quote, this person, quote, colluded with other complainants. The writer who wrote these things said in the stream was found this message, quote, 
I will find ways to respond. Life is long, and so is my memory, and so are my resources. That's a direct quote. Cuomo, it is reported, told him, Look, there are 11 cases of sexual harassment against me. 11 cases creates a press frenzy. Who will say anything other than, You must resign? Okay, I know Andrew. Am I whitewashing him? No. He very recently said to me he'd get back to me. He didn't. I know his workplace was a war front. I know he believed he's impregnable. I know he'll say whatever he needs to say. I know he's looking to claw back up. I know he's not cuddly. And I also know if he ends up as a movie usher, I don't care. I am just mentioning what maybe should be mentioned. Could be Cuomo's version is possibly too self-exculpatory, but following this scholar's intensive fact-finding, possibly, just possibly, fairness deserves, if nothing else, even if the schlepper's moving van is not double-parked to possibly relocate this former czar's belongings back upstate. I'm just saying, to be fair, maybe, maybe, just maybe, the findings deserve another look, and I don't care what happens to Andrew Cuomo. Look, I am Cindy. I have been on this radio program for an hour. I am about to leave you, and you can have a station break. And I am about to tell you, I love being on WABC. I love doing this radio program. I love talking to you. I love the letters you write, even if some of you don't say nice things to me. But now I'm going to sign off, and I will see you again next Sunday at 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. And thank you very much for listening to me this far. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.